just reminding you. We have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com. Check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shower curtains in there. Keep clean. Look cool. Have cool stickers to put on stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. Greetings, listeners. It is I, TV Spitzer and Farmer Dave, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu Mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Okay, I, I, I think I got this. I think I'm not going to burn down the building by pushing this button. Okay, we're good. Hey, now, can you hear me? Hi. Hi. Hello. Okay, I'm going to assume that you said yes, and that you can hear me, and I will continue. Um, hi. My name is Farmer Dave, and I'm going solo today because... Uh, my friend and partner, DB, has had some medical procedures, so he's going to be out, and it's the holidays and all. Yeah, hi. So I'm going to pretend that I know what I'm doing and can present a halfway enjoyable show uh, by myself. So you are listening to The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, and your single host today is me, Farmer Dave, David Heath. And, uh... So, yeah, there's just me, so I can talk about whatever I want. And so I am. And we're going to talk about one of Lovecraft's better known but least liked uh, short stories. Maybe why. And it's something that happened afterwards. Um, I know I'm being cryptic, so let's just kind of... uh, I'm just going to say it because there's no one here to stop me. We're going to be talking about uh, Herbert West, reanimator, and then we're going to talk a little bit about pre-Romero zombies and the uh, sort of you know zombie, the first wave of zombie movies and stories before uh, George Romero's classic, The Dawn of the Dead. So in February of 2022, believe it or not, Herbert West Reanimator celebrated its 100th anniversary. Now, a lot of people thought that it was written later, and I'll kind of explain why. But um, 
So we're going to be talking about a hundred-year-old story, and we are going to have spoilers for said hundred-year story. So um, just be prepared. So Lovecraft wrote this probably February to July in uh, 1922, and he wrote it for a amateur magazine called Homebrew. Couple things you have to know about homebrew. It's amateur, but that doesn't mean they didn't get paid. They just didn't pay a lot, and they didn't hire big names. So uh, Lovecraft got six dollars an installment, which would have been sixty to seventy dollars in today's money. Um, Lovecraft is going to basically think he deserved more, but at the same point, he's not going to like this story. We're going to go back into why. The other thing that I think people don't quite understand about Homebrew or get, it was a satire magazine. Lovecraft was basically making fun of horror stories. Now, I realize I, I misspoke a little bit there, um, and I said that it was written uh, in 1922. It was published in 1922, probably written early 1921. And homebrew, besides being satire, was a bit on the racy side. I mean, nothing now, in fact. But if you see, like, uh, one of the covers, it was a hand-drawn picture of a, a woman. She's fully clothed, uh, but she does have sort of an ample bosom. So it's it's not the, the racy pulps, but it, it's a sort of racy pulp light. And that's going to be, of course, Lovecraft's not going to have any uh, sexual innuendo or romantic uh, entanglements in his story, but uh, it's going to be sort of on the gruesome side for 1922. Now, Lovecraft did not particularly like this story. It was definitely one of his early works. He really thought he should have gotten more money for it, and there's some there were technical issues that he didn't like. Uh, the editor insisted on basically each portion, or six portions, to be uh, ending with sort of a, a wham or a cliffhanger. And that the beginning of the next one would summarize the what happened in the last chapter, because they were published... Uh, in a six-month period. To be honest, if this was not the first place that uh, Herbert West was uh, printed, Homebrew would have been forgotten with the rest of the hundreds, if not thousands, of small-time amateur presses that popped up during the early uh, 20th century. And Herbert West did appear in volumes one through six of the... Uh, first volume. And though the title uh, Herbert West Reanimator is not maybe the most sensational, the titles for each uh, chapter were, it was things like Six Shots at Midnight and The Scream of the Dead. Here we see Lovecraft almost mocking the uh, melodramaticness of, of some of the pulp writings at the time. Now, the creatures were not called 
zombies that he would be, he, the corpses that he reanimated. And it's very clear that West did this by science, not magic. But in the Cthulhu mythos, there's not that much difference between science and magic. Magic is just a science we don't understand yet. So we see some things at the end, such as the wall being torn down and it mysteriously re repairing itself. And we see the creatures almost teleporting. Uh, and this is some sort of power that they received by the serum that Wes created and injected them with. Either that or the nameless narrator, and Lovecraft started that nameless narrator trope when he was really early in his career, um, hallucinated the whole thing. He, the unnamed narrator here is an unreliable narrator. And we kind of take that it's as fact. What he saw is true because Cthulhu mythos, but also because... You know, it's kind of, we don't realize now as much that this was satire. And I'm not sure if that was Lovecraft's attempt, but another possibility is that this guy just imagined all this, that he is insane, he is off his rocker, he killed his friend Herbert, and this is the excuse that his mind created for it. Now, as I said, the, the story was published first, um in 1922 but in 1942 two de decades later and after Lovecraft's death it is going to be republished Weird Tales is going to republish it as a new Lovecraft story even though technically it had been printed with a small run 20 years before and Weird Tales is going to keep it pretty much intact in that they're not going to change the expository at the beginning where uh, where Lovecraft basically has to explain, where he's required to explain, what happened in the previous chapter. So there's not a... If it had been a true story written at that time for them, uh, more likely he would have been told to not do that and that the editor would just put a, a little recap at the beginning. But they publish it pretty much as is. Um, like I said, it is considered by many for different reasons not to be his best work. But part of it is I don't think we quite acknowledge just that it was meant to be satire. Uh, what it did get it was a sort of a uh, shot in the arm of rejuvenating the serum uh, is that it was you know, made into the classic Reanimator series uh, starring Jeffrey Combs. Uh, Jeffrey Combs and I happen to be homeboys. I've met him, I've walked by him a couple times at conventions. We've never actually talked, but we are both from the same hometown, Oxnard, California. Something happened, though, between its publication in Homebrew and its publication in Weird Tales. And like I said, it's not a zombie story, but it's a reanimated dead story. And the Z word never appears in it. Um, and just like 
the Z word never reappears, never appears in the original Dawn of the Dead. And that was that there was sort of this first wave zombie hype. And this is going to happen with a pub book published uh, after Lovecraft wrote uh, Herbert West, Reanimator, Magic Island by William Seabrook. So Seabrook is this, catches onto this wave of, of travelogues, basically, especially exotic, mysterious, and possibly mystical areas. So he spent a lot of time in Africa and in uh, Haiti, and he writes his story, Magical Island. It's a huge seller in the U.S., especially Chapter 7, where he basically introduces America to this zombie concept. It really was a big concept in the pulps and pre-Romero times. Um, and in it, he actually claims that while he is traveling, he sees three zombies. Now, I don't mean like, you know, undead zombies. He claims he was taken to a plantation, and there were basically three zombie workers that just would not stop working. They would not recognize him. They didn't blink. They didn't interact with him. Uh, and his guide called them zombies. Now, he didn't think it was something necessarily mystical. What he thought, these were basically individuals that were either um, emotionally or intellectually uh, damaged and or both. And that the plantation owners would take them and verbally, maybe physically, abuse them into a catatonic state. And, and that's a possibility. That there may have been cho people that were chosen that were not of normal mental function and functioning. And they were abused into slave labor. That's, I'm not going to say didn't happen. He also brings up the possibility... He claims, and this is the first time that we see that zombie as a result of drugs, is that the Haitian government would, would and take people that were scheduled to be executed instead of killing them, would basically drug them and make them into zombie workforce. Uh, I don't think there's really any evidence that the government did that. I'm not going to say that there aren't cases of people being drugged and passed off as zombies in 1920s Haiti, but I'm not really sure there's any evidence it was how the government handled capital death crimes. But uh, it definitely caught the American public. And so he, one other thing about Seabrook, uh, he did travel Africa, and he claims to have actually encountered a group of cannibals and engaged in with them in their their meal. Well, eventually he kind of confesses that it was true. He did meet cannibals in Africa, but they would not let him as an outsider join in what he was what they were doing. So he eventually commits cannibalism in the United States. What he does is he doesn't kill anybody. Is he gets basically someone who worked at either a morgue or a mortuary to smuggle out some parts of a body in which 
he partake. Um, again, maybe that part isn't true either, but it gives you a little idea who Seabrook was. But Seabrook's story, The Magic Island, just got so... It, it became popular. It just caught people's imagination, set it on fire in America. And then in the 30s and the 40s, we are going to see the first wave of zombie movies in the U.S. Uh, I Walked with Zombies, White Zombie, Revenge of the Zombie. It's going, and now a lot of these are not going to be the rem, the Romero, I mean Romero type zombies that we see, you know, post Dawn of the Dead. But it's going, the idea of a zombie is going to be really fixated in American horror, almost the way it, a werewolf or a mummy or where or vampires were. And in this way, and that you know, Herbert West reanimator is is not seen as Lovecraft's greatest work in any way but because of this it gets it catches on in the 1942 republishing because there's already this zombie hype just in a lot of ways after the release of the comic book Walking Dead created this and the TV show created this sort of renewed interest in zombies so did Seabrook's book that weird tales you basically use to to republish uh, Lovecraft's work. Well, um, I'm sure that if DB was here, he'd have a lot more to say. But uh, we're going to kind of end this part and go on to the, the next part. Hi, I'm Rob Whiten from the Innsmouth Book Club. Join me and my fellow guide, John Chadwick, as we take you on a fortnightly tour of Innsmouth. We visit places such as the Picture House, the Library and Innsmouth Museum to discuss all aspects of weird fiction, whether it be book, film, music, TV or art. As well as that, we stop over at the Gilman House to have a chat with a resident guest. That includes authors, artists, musicians, in fact, Lovecraftian creatives of all types. You can find our free shows on Patreon, and there you can also sign up as a patron, which brings you bonus content, plus a monthly PDF copy of Innsmouth News, which features articles, author spotlights, all the latest news and reviews, and more. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash InnsmouthBC. We hope to see you soon, because remember, Innsmouth isn't just a place, it's a state of mind. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide 
to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Hey everybody, it's me, uh, Farmer Dave, and uh, as I think I've said already in this show, um, uh, DB is a little bit under the weather, and it's, you know, the holidays, so a lot of things are going on, so uh, basically, I have no adult supervision. That can be either very good or very bad, depending on where your point of view is coming from. So basically, what it does mean is I'm going to talk about whatever I want to talk about. So there. Nah, just kidding. So, um, you know, people who know me, you know, if I have a love of literature, which I do, but two forms I really do like, and if I love anything as much as I love uh, cosmic horror, it's going to be cyberpunk. Uh, in fact, I've got some things I want to plan and talk about cyberpunk uh, on future shows, but I want to talk a little bit about cyberpunk TV. That came out in this last year. Talk about four shows and what admittedly is not cyberpunk, but I think influenced by cyberpunk. And one of them actually came out in November of last year, but I'm finally getting around to watching it. So since I've already basically stated this entire show is about me, it falls within the uh, uh, the parameters of this show. So the first recent cyberpunk TV show I'm going to talk about is Blade Runner Black Lotus. And there's a lot of Blade Runner semi-canon out there. Um, of course, everyone you know probably knows this. Blade Runner was based on a Philip K. Dick story called Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And even though, you know, Philip K. Dick died as they got you know, started working on it. He did work, and some with Ridley Scott. But it's a completely different story. It has a lot of the same tropes, and I, I want to correct myself, it's a different story. But it has a lot of the tropes. And where Blade Runner is very much about the 80s, uh, do androids dream of the, electric, of the electric sheep, even though they're both set in the near future of their times, are... Um, is about clearly about the 50s and the 60s and the experiences that Philip K. Dick had and the same way that Blade Runner is the first movie that uh, Ridley Scott works on after his older brother Frank died. Frank was not in Hollywood. Uh, he was a uh, he was a merchant marine who had died, was much older than Ridley, and had died of skin cancer. Uh, and so a lot of Ridley Scott's raw emotions went into the, this movie, Blade Runner, as well as a lot of uh, Philip K. Dick's questions and wanting to understand the nature of reality and his life and insanity, and he was, he was diagnosed schizophrenic, and drug use go into, you know, do, do androids dream of electric sheep. 
So there's a lot of comic books. I remember there's even like a kind of choose your own adventure book out in the 80s. Um, a couple of uh, follow-up semi-canon novels uh, that kind of try to bridge between the book and the movie uh, Replicant Night. But the one of the newest ones is Black Lotus, and it came out for Cartoon Network's Adult Swim and last year, last year being 2021, November. Uh, and I think it's a good, um, I, I think it's a good follow-up to the Blade Runner movies. It is loyal to the canon, but doesn't hold it sacrosanct. It's not too loyal, if that makes any sense. It's willing to go on its own ways. It's also very influenced by uh, 60s, 70s, and later uh, Grindhouse Revenge movies. And it's basically a revenge story. Now, I'm going to try to keep things as um, spoiler-free as possible, but uh, if you haven't seen it, there will be some spoilers. And it definitely, I think, takes this revenge... Well, it does. It takes this revenge idea that was so... Uh, you know, revenge exploitation movies of, of you know, the uh, 20th century. And it takes them, this is a, with a character named L. And L is, spoilers, a replicant, even though they don't reveal it until, like, fourth episode. It's pretty obvious. Who was programmed not to kill and was sent out to be hunted. Uh, by human beings, but during this hunt, uh, her her combat instincts kicked in, and now she's going on this Quentin Tarantino-style uh, quest for revenge throughout uh, noir L.A. of the people that basically hunted her and her fellow replicant. Now, when William Gibson wrote the, the first official cyberpunk book, Neuromancer, he was deeply influenced by noir. Uh, and you see it in his writings. But even more than Gibson, I think, at about the same time, Scott's Blade Runner, I mean, is obviously neo-noir. It is tech-noir. It is future-noir. Whatever you want to call it. It's basically a noir story. A washed-up cop goes, is forced back into one last job and meets a femme fatale. That's the core of, of, of noir. And this has very much that noir feeling, uh, as well as this revenge plot. In fact, it is so uh, noirish that the Blade Runner in it is named Marlowe, like Philip Marlowe from Dashiell Hammett novels. I, I mean, it, it again... It embraces its in noir origins, but not to the point where it holds it as a holy as a sacred cow. It's willing to sort of play with it and realize that you know the whole nature of noir is things are not perfect. The future is not perfect, and it also dwells very much on the you know the. The Mike Hammer, you know, Philip Marlowe, you know, L.A. at the time. So it takes this 
post-war L.A. and gives it a basically alternative future version, but it keeps the things that were in those original L.A.-based noir stories. The corruption, the ambiguity, ambiguity, and takes in this question, what is real, that was in so much of Philip K. Dick's work. So, honestly, it's a great series. I would suggest anyone who wants to, to watch it. Uh, one thing i got to bring up is the Uncanny Valley. So, it's that weird sort of 3D art that we see in computer games. And, and the more I watch it, every time I watch the episodes at first, I, I'm, I'm in that uncanny valley. I'm shaking. And about five or six minutes into the show, it disappears. And I, I become immersed in the world. And, and I thought at first this was a coincidence, but I think it was kind of an idea that they did do this on purpose because of the nature of the show. Reality, science fiction artificial intelligence uh, so even though in many cases I'm not a fan of this 3d video game art it works in this case the other I want to talk about is edge runners and edge runners could basically be written off as like a 10 30 minute ads for the cyberpunk 2077 video game but it is not it is so much more um, because of everything. Uh, honestly, uh, Trigger, the studio that did it, just hit it out of the park. Uh, the story, the loyalty to uh, uh, Mike Pondsmith's original plans in the original role-playing game, uh, the color, the characters, uh, the fact that it does not swerve away from this this crap sack world that's out there that there are individual moments of happiness and in fact and again not the spoilers i would say that this is darker than gibson's work in gibson's work you could at least earn your own happy ending this the world is against you it is so set against you it's just, you got to live in the moment because just there are no long-term happy endings for anybody. And at its core, good cyberpunk is about characters. And these characters are just deep and amazing. Even characters like Rebecca, who just seems to be this sort of gun-happy Lolita at the beginning, you see in the end just how depth deep these characters are and they do so well for just so few episodes there's kind of like a bonus episode that honestly i didn't know about until about a week ago and i don't know why i missed it but it is um basically a prequel that was released and again it it's basically an ad for the series but it's so well done and it's an independent story and that is sasha's story um it's a four or so minute uh, video that you can watch on YouTube. It's basically, it is a music video set to the uh, Edge Runner closing song, which is Let You Down. It has been suggested that 
if you like the story but don't particularly like the song or the music you can just basically watch it with the sound turned off and you can because there's no real dialogue except for the dialogue over like cell phones that you can read and it's just a really great four minute show that is sort of a prequel it introduces Maine's crew or at least part of Maine's crew I kind of think that this is sort of a for those who follow the series this is that Sasha was the net runner before Kiwi and Lucy and again it captures this crap sack world of cyberpunk but the triumphs of the human heart and I think it's just a great great uh four little minute show that can be watched either for free either independently or in any any time with the uh watching the ed runners in fact i watched it literally months after i'd seen the original series uh even though it's a prequel so it's, it's really good and i would recommend the whole thing to anybody who is interested in cyberpunk in general so you can't talk about william gibson without you know and TV, you know, without talking about The Peripheral, which is just a great show written, you know, by the inventor of cyberpunk, William Gibson, on Amazon Prime. And it stars Chloe Grace Moretz, who will forever be the 13-year-old assassin in Kick-Ass to me, but just amazing. I just did not realize how amazingly talented she is. Uh, she makes this believable character that you're completely invested in who has charm and faults and just like I said I, I think she's great and the chemistry she has with Jack Raynor plays her brother is just amazing and you know uh, Chloe's character does have romantic interests but the fact that her key relationship is her brother and just the love and protection and the fact that they try to protect each other maybe more than they should. They should be maybe open to each other. Just an incredible dynamic, well-written. Uh, I think it's amazing. So if you're not familiar with this, and I haven't read the book. I was aware of the book, but I hadn't read it. It's basically this girl is hired to test this virtual reality and in doing so, it may not be virtual reality. She may be in actually traveling to a different dimension. And the intrigue and espionage that comes out of this, it's an amazing story, you know, based on the writings of, like I said, the grandfather of, or godfather of cyberpunk. Um, and it's also kind of familiar or tangently related to one of my favorite least known Gibson works, which is Archangel, which is about another dimension basically reaching out and trying to change things uh, after World War II so that this other reality becomes like theirs but doesn't make the same mistake. And it's just a, it's a great show. It's a great cast. It is, there's a lot of action, but there's a lot of slow burn. So you've got to be a, and, and it's not a bad thing, but you've got to be willing to invest in the story and the characters 
in-betweens or the opening and closing combat uh, scenes. But, you know, I like it. I really, really do like it and cannot recommend it enough. And finally, to wrap this up, I want to talk about a show that is not cyberpunk, but very cyberpunk influenced, tangently. And that is Money Heist. Uh, whatever the one, the one set in Korea, the new one, the one they just released the episodes. And it's beginning to get out of the shadows of the Spanish money heist. It will never be as good, in my opinion, as the Spanish money heist, but almost nothing is. Um, and these characters are kind of diverging from the Spanish versions. Um, but in a lot of ways, it's very cyberpunkish. The lights, uh, the fact that it takes place not only in Korea, which gives us this very sort of, I mean, obvious Asian uh, appearance, but it takes place in a future, near future, fictional. So there's not like, you know, robotic arms and things, but where peace between North and South Korea have basically on its way, it's achieving. And so the DMZ is made into this new future city, you know, but complete with all the problems that large cities have, and people from the north and the south go there as kind of like this Korean Casablanca, and they begin to, you know, live their lives and are caught up in this hope for a new life, a better life, which isn't always the reality, and it's, you know, the company which is made up in this case not like a corporation but made up between north and south korean politicians is very cyberpunk and where the spanish which again i love the spanish money heist they were basically criminals who became heroes who had became you know revolutionaries they were kind of forced in that, but even the professor who, who you know, planned everything, who does have this maybe a skewed but very sense of justice, um, you know, started out as a criminal. And here, yes, they're criminals, uh, but there's more of a sense of fighting the system, an acknowledged system that they're that have done them wrong. And so a lot of the feelings, the, the Asian influences, especially like their version of Tokyo at the beginning, her backstory is very cyberpunk. This whole idea of this new Korea being corrupted by a corporation, even though it's a governmental corporation, is very cyberpunk. And so uh, I, again, it's, if you're going to watch something, by all means, watch a Spanish episode. That's probably the best. I mean, in my opinion. But if you want some sort of cyberpunk fix, uh, the Korean uh, the Korean version of Money Eyes, uh, not bad. Okay, so um, I'm going to kind of end it here, and hopefully soon we'll be able to have a DB back and... If you are listening to this during the holidays, uh, by all means, happy holidays, whichever holidays you celebrate or don't celebrate in your case, and we'll be seeing you soon.
you're gonna talk with the mayor Cause the mayor says he wants to have a chat We're gonna talk with the mayor Cause the mayor says he knows where it's at